0: You're listening to the Director's Box, a football business podcast. Here are your hosts, Raphael Geller and Jesse Forstott.
1: Hey everyone, I'm Jesse, and today on the Director's Box, I'm joined by Raphael and Liverpool University football finance lecturer, Kieran Maguire. Today with Kieran, we'll be chatting all things finance, especially as it relates to the impact COVID is having. Kieran will give us his take on the different types of ownership, including the pros and cons of fan owned clubs. We discuss the ever-important finances surrounding television broadcast rights, and Kieran doles out some facts on KIT sponsorship deals. Kieran McGuire is a chartered accountant who is currently a lecturer at the University of Liverpool. Kieran has used his expertise over the past few decades to become a leading expert on the finances of football. Kieran is also one half of the excellent and now world-renowned football finance podcast called The Price of Football. He also published a book earlier this year by the same name. First, anyone interested in learning more about the way things work behind the scenes should check out Kieran show and his new book. We really enjoyed this conversation and hope you do too. Hey Kieran, thanks for joining us. How's everything with you?
0: Uh, it's all good. The sun's shining. The sky is blue. Um, the world could be worse, I guess. Although it's not great, clearly. And uh, I just hope everybody, uh, your side of the pond is is healthy, and you know, people are looking after themselves. Appreciate that. Where, where are you joining us from exactly? Um, I'm, uh, I'm I'm south of London. Um, I'm in a little place called Sussex. Uh, live in a tiny little village with my my wife and my dog.
1: Very nice. And Raphael's here as well. Raphael, how are you doing?
2: Doing well. It's also a beautiful day here. It probably will be a beautiful day here for the next three months and get very hot, but that's, that's the Middle East. So yeah, everything's good here. All
1: right. Well, God, everyone's doing well. Um, so Kieran, maybe you could, you could start us off by just explaining a little bit about your background, how you got to where you are. Um, I, I, like most people, I, I guess I've, I've ended up where I am as, as a series of
0: sliding doors moments. Um, I'm, I'm an academic, um, and, uh, I've, I've always tried to use football as an example to explain things, because if I, if I say to a you know, class of grads, hey guys, yeah, today we're looking at the pensions policy of Samsung. um and, and you know they're, they're straight onto Facebook, they're straight onto Instagram, yeah, they've got no interest in it whatsoever. Um, but I'd, I'd always found that if, I, if I'd said, uh, do you know why Manchester United haven't signed any players this season? Uh, I've got the financial data, which will show you, and, and none of the journalists to pick up on this. All of a sudden, interest, and, and I'm fortunate that I've I've spent my academic career lecturing in in both Manchester and Liverpool, which are, you know, as as you probably aware, two of the the foremost footballing cities here in England. Um, so I, I was sort of using football as as a as a means of teaching by stealth, um, and you know, being being a college college lecturer the pay the pay is terrible so so I supplement that by by doing uh, doing a little bit of teaching for uh, for the investment banking community so I, I was down down teaching a, a big big investment bank um one day in 2005 all of a sudden the the shutters go across the windows the doors are locked and there's there's four big burly bouncers at the door Uh, I'm going, Hey guys, what's going on? And they said, uh, well, we're involved in uh, a takeover of Manchester United, which is going to be announced in 10 minutes. And uh, it's, I don't think it's going to go down well with the fans because it's a leveraged buyout. And uh, you know, we, we fear that, uh, and of course this would never happen in the States, that people will get angry about it and they'll, they'll throw things through the windows. Um, So, so, so uh, that." So I I picked up a little bit about the deal and it it just so happened that the the BBC phoned up my university that day and said, we need somebody to explain what's going on. And the university dropped me in it. They just said, well, Kieran likes football. He he teaches about business and he's got a big mouth. Put those three things together. So so the next morning I spent my time on the radio stations. And then, of course, the next time there's a football finance story because they seemed to like what I did, um, sure. I uh, I was asked to do it again, and, and it sort of expanded over the years, um, and, and then sort of seven years ago, uh, Liverpool University headhunted me because they wanted me to teach football finance as a standalone topic, um, and, and that was it, and then and since then I've, I've just blogged and tweeted and started doing a podcast a few months ago, uh, with a stand-up comedian who, who's, who makes my spreadsheets a little bit more bearable than they probably are. Um, so I, I'm sort of uh, fairly busy working with the medium. And I, I mean, I've done some work, which has been published by CNN today. I was working with Forbes last week the Financial Times. Um, so it did sort, you know, sort of good, good quality journalistic sources, as, as well as doing a lot of work for the BBC and Sky and, and all the other broadcasters.
1: Yeah, def- definitely a unique background, and I think that's probably why one of the reasons that you've been very popular, especially with everything that's going on right now. There's a, a million different ways to look at the finances of football with what's going on in the world, unfortunately. So the first thing I wanted to talk about, and this is actually something I heard about on that you talked about on your podcast. Which, by the way, if any of any of our listeners haven't uh, haven't heard of it already, it's called The Price of Football, and I couldn't recommend it anymore. Um, but something that you touched on and it actually crossed over with um, someone that I was speaking to over here in the United States about the financial state of clubs. And I think it actually came from a question from one of your viewers. They asked, how does this compare to the 2008, 2009 financial crisis? And in my head, I thought, I thought that to be a little bit of a weird question because yeah, people were losing money in both situations, but they didn't seem all that, that comparable to me, but whatever. And I think your answer, you can remind me exactly of what your answer was, but, the in the premier league at least the clubs didn't have such a bad time did they
0: no no in in the premier league because they are they're locked into 3 year tv deals and at the time the, the premier league was sort of um was sort of the crack cocaine of broadcasting if if you were a subscription channel um and you wanted people to Uh, buy into your product, what what you would do is is you'd get the Premier League rights. And every time they came up for renewal, the Premier League was able to negotiate a higher and higher price. So uh, we we were seeing uh, 70% increases every three years. Um, On on top of that, we've got global clubs, Manchester United, Chelsea, Liverpool, and so on, um, who were exploiting their uh, global support base and they were able to sign front of shirt deals and sponsorship deals all 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 over the globe, doing pre season tours. So it it effectively bypassed football, um, and it it just carried on and it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. But what we're seeing here in in twenty twenty in in terms of the of the COVID nineteen pandemic, um, is that all of the if you if you look at a football club where does it get money from it gets money's from, money from ticket sales it gets money from broadcasters and it gets money from from its sponsors well yeah we're not allowed to have mass gatherings um the football isn't allowed to take place for three months so therefore the broadcasters they can't collect money from subscribers so therefore they're demanding money back the sponsors are saying well we paid for front of shirt but if you're not playing football we, that you can't advertise our products. so they're demanding money back as well. So football is, yeah, it, it's it's taken a huge hit. Uh, it it is returning here in the UK in in uh, just over two weeks. Um, and uh, whilst I'd sort of got to the stage where I, I just didn't I'd ceased to really care too much, actually, as soon as that was announced and the fixtures were announced, and it's and it's going to be every every single match is going to be broadcast here on TV. And uh, as a football fan, um, I just I just like to apologise in advance for anybody who has a wife or a partner or a boyfriend who doesn't like football, because we've got matches kicking off at twelve thirty on a Saturday, followed by three o'clock, followed by five thirty, followed by eight o'clock, and then on a Sunday it's two, four, and six. So you know it's 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 just going to be wall to wall football to to help us get our fix back.
2: Yeah, I think the British media has been having some pretty exciting headlines talking about, I think I saw football bonanza and all, uh, all sorts of headlines. But I want to take it back a bit. And I think this is something very important to discuss and kind of get more of your thoughts on. But when we think of a football owner, right, a lot of people think that that individual must have a lot of money and he puts in a lot of money into a club. But can you walk us through about how a football owner can also be a person who is more in charge of dealing with all the revenue that comes into the club but doesn't necessarily put in a lot of money from his own pocket because there seems to be this myth in the world of sports forget even football that when an owner buys a club or when an owner is in charge of a club it means that he's throwing millions and millions of pounds into the club now in many cases of course that that is happening in in bigger clubs in the Premier League and and even other leagues. But there are also some owners who are more in charge of the finances of the club, and their job is to to make the best out of the revenue that comes in, and maybe they put a little bit of money here and there. I think that's something that so many people don't talk about, and I'd love to get your thoughts more about that side of of being an owner than rather just putting in money.
0: Yeah, the the rationale for being an owner does vary without wanting to plug my book i've, I've got a chapter on it and i say well, why buy a football club three reasons um love vanity and insanity and and that broadly covers the reasons why so so i i support a club where um i think we were talking off there we've got an owner a guy called tony bloom he's a professional uh, a professional poker player um and he's put in 350 million sterling um, Into in building up a club, which I suspect the majority of the people in the US haven't ha, haven't heard of. So, yeah, huge sums involved. But there are other business models where the aim is to make money. And so, if you take a look at Manchester United, the Glazer family, which sort of yeah you know, I, I referred to earlier, they uh, they acquired Manchester United via a leverage buyout. They they paid around about seven hundred and seventy million sterling for it. Um, they didn't put any money in; they just borrowed money from the banks. And since then, they've not repaid the loans. They've just paid interest only on those loans. But Manchester United, uh, because of the income streams, um, Manchester United's got a capacity of 76,000. So last year, it made uh, just over 110 million from ticket sales. Uh, It made 250 million from, uh, or 270 million from sponsorship deals. Um, Because the way that the Manchester United model works is they have an official snack partner in korea they 've got another one in the philippines they 've got another one in japan they 've got another one in nigeria and and they work on a basis of having lots of local commercial partners and, and then the third arm of of income is broadcasting um, and and the, and the premier League is uh, as a as a sport as a team sport i think is, is the most lucrative. Um, one from a tv perspective if you look at both uh, you know if you add the domestic and international deals together um and you throw in the champions league into that and all of a sudden we're talking about a business which is generating a huge amount of money um manchester united pay out around about uh, 58 cents in the dollar uh in wages and, and that leaves some money left over to make profits so so the glazer family do quite well out of it they take out a, a dividend uh, twice yearly um and uh, yeah, they, they've been very, they've been very well remunerated on that basis without putting a penny in. Um, and there are a couple of other clubs in the Premier League which which operate on a similar basis, where they just work to a really tight budget. They've got a good coach, um, and this allows them to make an annual profit, which which enhances the value of the club. So you you can put money in, but you don't have to. Um, you know, I think when people see sort of sovereign wealth funds, as as we've seen with the uh, United Arab Emirates, Abu Dhabi, and Manchester City, which has transformed Manchester, Man- Manchester City used to be a joke of a club um, here in the UK. They are in the third tier uh, a few years ago, and they were taken over by the Prime Minister of Thailand. Who, yeah, I wouldn't want to say he's a crook, but hey, he's a crook. Yeah, he's, he's um, a crook
2: you can say it on the show he's a crook. Okay. So he sold, he sold um after 11 months I believe right? He bought it and yeah. sold it.
0: Yes. He he yeah. wasn't there very long. Um so so uh, Manchester City me I I I I uh I've lived in Manchester most of my life. I've got a I don't support Manchester City but I've got lots of friends who do and and for them it it's I'm I'm really pleased. Um so you've got People like them who who are prepared to bankroll the club and you've got um, high net worth individuals who who want to buy a football club because um, if, if you are incredibly wealthy, how do you impress your friends? Because you've all got an apartment in you know in new york and you got another one in monaco and you've all got a big yacht and you all own a couple of helicopters um you want to show off to these other ridiculously wealthy people if you can say i own i own a soccer club i own a football club in london and next saturday um we're we're hosting manchester united fancy coming down to watch they're going to go okay and I hate to use this word you've trumped me, um, and uh, you know so it, it, it becomes a, it comes as a vanity purchase as a trophy asset uh, there's only twenty of them in the Premier League at any one point in time, so therefore it attracts these people who have more money than sense
2: right, right, but I think in in terms of uh teams maybe in the championship and league one and league two when the revenue streams obviously aren't at the same level, not even close. Do you, do you feel that someone can run a football club successfully or well, even when he's not pumping in a lot of money from his own pocket, if he knows how to manage the money that one comes in, that's the first thing. And the second thing is if he knows how to increase the money that's coming in, because that's also being a good owner is coming up with creative ideas to increase the revenue. You may come to a club where the revenue is $5 million. You bring in your new marketing staff, you bring in new staff, and suddenly you make the revenue ten million, and then that 's beneficial for your club being better and you didn 't put in a penny from
0: your own pocket yes that that is that is feasible it, it's not it 's not feasible in the championship um, and the, the, if you take a look at the championship there 's twenty four clubs in it last year twenty three of them um, made a loss, and the one which made a profit it, it made a profit of uh, one million in a division where the total losses were six hundred and thirty million so it it just made a profit and it was rewarded with being relegated so the the championship is, is a is, is a problem in the sense that because people are fixated on the premier league and and the financial rewards and the status rewards that it brings that they won't lose money but if you then drop a a further step into leagues one and two um yet that there are lots of provincial teams you know teams where they'll be getting crowds of four five six thousand a match um who who do break even because the owners have this viewpoint that I'm not actually a particularly wealthy individual. I don't want to therefore be putting money from my pocket into the club on a regular basis. Um, And and they just set a budget and and try to stick to it. Um, They they will see themselves as development clubs, bringing players through who other clubs don't want, improving
1: those players and then selling the players as a profit. Yeah. We we don't exactly have much of a transfer market. Uh, That's something that we're hoping will change, but maybe that's something that we can get to later because you touched on something that I, that I wanted to ask Kieran, which um, it actually goes back to a prior episode we have, something that one of our guests, um, Tor Christian Carlson said, when he was working from his experience as as a scout, especially, he he said something that I found very interesting, which had to do with American owners. Um, so I'd be curious to hear if, if, you've, if you've found the same type of attitude that American owners have on the financial side. And what he said was, I, I felt that I had... I was brought to task a lot more i had to be i had to be a lot more specific when i was when I was working with American owners. They wanted to see everything written out they wanted to be fully up to date and they just wanted a lot more information from them. Obviously that's generalizing, but I'd be curious to hear if any financial records tell a similar story about American owners or maybe they're maybe they're worse off or maybe they're no different than than owners from other parts of the world but i I'd be curious to hear.
0: I, I, I think American owners normally st- start off that way because they are coming from um, a franchise-based uh, culture uh, in in terms of you know, of US sport, yeah, you know, in, in terms of NFL, NBA, and so on, um, and, and therefore there's it, it is very much data-driven. Um, Certainly, as far as Liverpool are concerned um they do use a money ball style approach in terms of of player recruitment and and that has proven to be successful so um the uh, the, the guys at f s g have been very i th- i think they've been the the best american owners uh in terms of that 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 approach um the the glazers at manchester United because manchester United is a cash cow um They've just been quite happy to to take the money each year. Their, their main focus has not really been on the football side. It has been um, to develop Manchester United as a commercial vehicle. And in, in that regard, they, they've yeah. been very successful.
2: Can, can I, sorry to interrupt you on there, but I think that's something that I've spoken about, about a lot with, with friends and colleagues is, you know, people always ask, how does Ed have a job? How does he keep the job? And my argument has always been, well, he's making the Glazer family more money. He's continuing to make them more money and the Glazer family, with all respect to them, you can't say that they care or not that they don't care, but their number one priority is to make money. And the the revenue stream of, of Manchester United is continuing to go up and up. The results have gone down since 2013 when Sir Alex left, but that's what it comes down to for them is the most important thing. Not whether they win trophies, not, you know, they have the brand. They're in the era where they continue to get, you know, ridiculous sponsorship deals and, all over the world, is that something that you think will, is that trend going to continue? Obviously people always wanted to make money, but with the opportunity, I'll go back to globalization. We spoke about, about that a little before we started recording. Do you see a lot of other teams with that kind of brand saying that the performances won't be as important to us as long as we can make a lot of money?
0: Um, in, in the main, no, because, uh... If, if, if everybody had a similar attitude in the Premier League, I, I think it would be a far more profitable organisation. Uh, but because you have this coming together of cultures and objectives, uh, Manchester United get away with it because they're Manchester United. When the Glazers um, bought the club, it had just won the Premier League, you know, sort of 10 years out of the last 14 or something of that nature. Um, it, it had been incredibly successful and they were able to leverage Um, on on top of that success. Um, For other clubs, I think it has been more of a challenge. Uh, Liverpool's model is intriguing in in that they they don't set out to make profits. They set out to break even. Um, And and they achieve that sort of practically every year. And then through player sales, they'll make a little bit of profit. But historically, that that has gone back into reinvesting in the club to um, expand the quality of of the team, they they they're, they're about to deliver on the on the Premier League title and, and deservedly so, um, but also to to expand Anfield as a stadium. So it's gone from forty five to fifty four thousand. They're hoping to go to sixty thousand, um, and on, on the back of that, they I think they will start to generate a, a high return. What uh, what John Henry will decide to do on the back of that, because he bought it for. 300 million sterling i think it was 2011 he he will be able to sell it for let's let's operate in a in a non-covid world because that has distorted many things but he could have sold it for six or seven times what he paid for it um so he's he has been very successful so those are the 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 examples of where it goes right you look at stan kronke and Arsenal, nobody you know, he's, he's called Silent Stan for a reason because he's never been seen at the grounds. Nobody knows exactly what his motives are. Um, so, so that's not been successful. And, and because of the the lack of investment, you know, where, where I said that Manchester United got away with lack of on-field success, Arsenal haven't because they're not as big a brand as Manchester United and they're starting to suffer financially on the back of that. Their revenues are down, their wage bills are down, which means they can't compete in the same markets. Um, And and then a couple of other um, US owners, we've had um, Randy Lerner at Aston Villa. Um, He he bought into the club, didn't, again, he thought he could bring sort of the, his business knowledge, his business acumen into the club, but football is a strange industry. And he walked away with huge losses, but he just, he'd had enough. Um, And and as well as uh, as Randy Lerner, we had uh, Ellis Short at Sunderland who uh, not only lost probably lost around about 150 million sterling um he his side ended up being relegated to divisions and i, I don't know whether you've seen the netflix documentary sunderland till i die um it, it is it is hilarious it's um, a good one yeah not if from sunderland, you're <laughs> not from sunderland that's right And and i share at university i share a corridor with two very, very devoted Sunderland fans and, and they watch it and they, they cry, but for the rest of us, it's, it's popcorn. Yeah, you know, it's, it's just, uh, this is how not to run a business.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And that kind of leads me to our next uh, topic that I want to discuss. And I want to talk about the model of, of Barcelona, you know, and how they're not owned by a specific person. Uh, last year, I believe, or between 2018 and 19, they ge- generated over $960 million of revenue and all their bills and everything shockingly were also very high and they made a very, they made a very small amount. I believe they made $18 million profit after making that kind of revenue. But uh, I wanna ask you about that system where you have the fans putting in that certain amount and then you have a board and the board is decided by the fans. And um, why do you think that we haven't really seen that at a, at a high level? Uh, in England and in general, you know, we, we've seen it work very well in Barcelona because of the brand that they're they are but we also see some clubs in Turkey also don't have an owner. They're the same type of of clubs. They run off all the revenue that they get and, and that works. Um, I want to get more of your thoughts on that model. That's the first question. And the second question is in the situation of a Barcelona where you don't have right now that individual owner who has the billion dollar net worth or $5 billion net worth. If you're, for example, they're, they were meant to make $960 million this year as well in revenue. And now they're losing $300 million in revenue because of COVID. What are they meant to do to, and, and their costs are also this, around the same amount as their revenue and they don't have that owner or the billionaire, not even if they did have the billionaire, he wouldn't put the money anyway. But in general, what is a club like that meant to do when you don't have that person?
0: Right. I mean, I'll answer those in, in turn. Um, the The advantage of a fan-owned model is that the fans buy into the club. They, that, that emotional investment, which they already have, is that much stronger. Because they feel that they're part of the decision-making process, um, the downside of that is things become very political. And if you take a look at Barcelona, what happens is that the the, the chief executive of the club spends half of his year trying to get re-elected for the following two or three seasons. Um, right. So you know the and you end up doing decisions. And clearly, this has never happened in the U.S. You end up uh, being, being trying to be populist rather than do what's right um and uh yeah that can mean that barcelona if if you take a look at their recruitment policy um they've 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 uh, they've adopted a a a populist recruitment policy so coutinho you know 150 million bucks a flop Um, dembele 150 million bucks a flop griezmann 120 million bucks Mm. He's he's okay, but he's he's not. So because there is pressure from the fans, because there is a misassociation with cost and value, Lionel Messi costs nothing. Right. Um, so it it can it it can be good because it, it is a form of democratization. I think it works far better in Germany. Where they have what's referred to as the fifty-plus-one rule, where one person cannot own more than forty-nine percent of a club unless they can evidence they've been supporting the club financially for at least twenty years. So that's why Bayern, um, Wolfsburg, Hoffenheim—they're able to circumvent those rules. But in general, um, the the fan involvement in German clubs works very well, Um, and you know, in in my opinion, Germany is is the best-run. Country, uh, you know, the, the DFB is is the best run league in, in in Europe. The only downside is that is that Bayern win it every year because they have such a financial advantage, and that, and that's the downside. In, in terms of your second question, in respect of what happens when the cash runs out, well, you, you can't turn to the owners because on an individual basis they don't have the wealth, which it means that you've got to go to the debt markets, um, and and clearly. Um, lenders are cautious at present uh, about lending to a football club because we don't know when we're coming out of COVID for, you know, on a long-term basis. Uh, whilst matches are due to return in Spain in a couple of weeks, that's to an empty stadium. So immediately one of your revenue streams is, is not going to be generating. Um, lenders are in a terrible position. if they If they lend to the club, and, and the club is is the size of Barcelona. You you can't ask for the money back. You can't demand it back. Can you imagine if you were Santander and you lent you know three hundred million euros to, to 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 Barcelona and then you say, well, it's it's due for repayment. Um, you know, Sant- what, what what Barcelona will do? They'll appeal to the fan base and say, well, we're we're being bullied here by Santander. Every Barcelona fan goes to the bank and closes down their Santander bank. You know, the public relations. Uh, negativity that would arise there would would be very damaging for for a bank. Uh, but if they, but if they don't lend to them, again that might come across if it, the way that it's leaked to the press that oh we need the money to survive, but Santander wouldn't lend us the money. Uh, you know that that can work negatively as well. So so um if you if you are a club the size of Barcelona, simply because of the scale of the club, you can go to the debt markets and and borrow. Um, but the lenders te- can be a little bit uncomfortable about that. Um, if you're a smaller club, you've got genuine problems such as we, you know, we, we've seen in Turkey. Um, you know, there's no incentive for the banks to lend, um, and the reputational damage for is, is that much smaller as well. So you know, th- there's a, there's a greater risk of, of bankruptcy there.
2: Yeah. I'm just going to quickly follow up on that. And then I know Jesse has a few questions for me. I- I've never really understood, you know, there's, For example, in Israel, there's a club that's owned by the fans, which means the fans uh, make all the decisions. Very similar model to Barcelona, but they don't bring in revenue. You know, they get the revenue from whatever. They get the normal revenue that every other team gets, and maybe they get more money here and there. Now, when they get promoted to the first division, for example, if they do, they want to be more competitive. And then they need someone called a quote-unquote sponsor and that sponsor is the one who's going to essentially give them the money to sign other players because the owners are putting in the whatever, €1,000, uh, €250, 1000 shekel here. That model of, of owning a club, when the revenues aren't like a Barcelona or, or clubs or you get revenue from other things besides TV and tickets, and, or you're not a club as big as Barcelona. In general, what are your thoughts on, on that being successful when you add... When you need, you have the need for the money. Eventually, you say, "Hey, I can't. I don't have enough money based off the revenue that's coming in." And then you add a quote-unquote sponsor. Isn't that essentially adding an owner?
0: Yes. Yeah. I mean, the the problem that clubs have when they are fan-owned, um, and, and I've been dealing with this uh, here in the UK with, with some of the fan-owned clubs, is that they have a natural ceiling in terms of where how, how far they can go and if the fans are willing to accept that that's that's cool you know there's that, not a problem if if the fan base say we want to go to the next level and we don't have the resources this is where whatever you want to call it the sponsor actually what we're looking for is a sugar daddy because what a, what a sugar daddy does he just gives you money and he doesn't expect a huge amount back from it
2: exactly part, but part, the st- but the sugar daddy's going to want... If the sugar daddy's coming in, he's suddenly going to say, hey, my friend needs to be on the board. I, oh, you, the coach wants this player. If I'm giving a million euro, uh-uh, I don't want that player. And suddenly the fans lose their power and it's like, well, what's the point?
0: Well, it, it, it depends on the, the nature of that relationship. If you take Portsmouth Football Club in the, uh, here, here in England, um, they're, they're in the third tier. They're in League One and they were a fan-owned club. And they realized that the ground's pretty dilapidated. They were operating with, a, with an okay budget, but they want to get promoted to the next division. Along comes Michael Eisner. And Michael Eisner does this, as you would imagine, from the former head of Disney. He does this really slick presentation and says, look, guys, I'm, I'm willing to take over, um, I, but, but I'll still consult you. And and they go, yeah, yeah okay. well, that's really great. So uh, we're getting the best of both worlds. We're getting lots of money from Michael Eisner and we're going to be consulted. Um, so that, that club's now been sold to Michael Eisner. Um, how much consultation? Perhaps a little bit less than the fans thought, al- although uh, my understanding is that relationships are still good. You- you're going to have to give up something and, and you're going to have to give up that democratisation of the club. Um, if you, if you want to go to the next level if if you do want to sponsor or an investor and and that's the way it goes and and that's a decision which has to be made um right. by clubs
1: obviously being american and try to apply a lot of this to the the way american clubs make money but unfortunately the the one of the, i think the biggest aspect here and really the, it seems to me the base of everything broadcasting is where everything starts is that fair to say
0: um it it, it is at the top tier because if if you are a broadcaster yourself um you, know, you you are looking for a product which will a generate subscriptions and b reduce the churn rate you know you've you've got a product which is addictive which uh it, which is dramatic um and there's relatively few of them um and and they've got to be, they've got a bit of glamour attached to it as well so if 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 we take a look um yeah, you know, I think we were in a chat before. I think the MLS is, is will have a, a reasonably good uh, broadcast deal. You drop down to to the USL, and that then the values there are going to be significantly lower. Why is that? Well, the quality of the products not as good. the The number of potential subscribers is going to fall, and you might also be competing with the NFL, with MLB, with NBA, and with the Premier League, and with La Liga. And all of a sudden, you know, if if you're, you're you're a relatively you know moderate-sized city or town in the U.S., trying to get trying to get your team, your soccer team, to compete against the giants is very difficult. So at the top tier, the value is the values are very much there. As far as the TV rights are concerned, as soon as you drop down. Um, certainly here in the UK, uh, the, the value of the, the Premier League TV deal is val- It varies from club to club because it's linked to success in the table. But it varies from 100 to 160 million a year. That's just from Premier League. That's not Champions League. You drop down to the Championship, one division below, and it's two and a half million. Right. So it's it, you're you're either there or you're nowhere. Is, is is the position? And I think that's that's the issue that um, you've potentially got in the states um that yeah you know, there's so much competition because whereas here in europe football is really the only game in town That you've got so much competition from your other sports in the states
1: right and i think even if you said you're you're either in the premier league making a ton of money from broadcasting or you're nowhere but even in the championship league one and league two you do make something where in the u.s that's very even that is missing from from the lower leagues as it stands but we we touched on it a bit before and it's something that i've i've been curious about which is a lot of clubs in in England, particularly, have clearly recognized the the potential, the earning potential of expanding their brand in the United States. Uh, obviously, for a million different reasons. Uh, the first question is: We talked. You mentioned Sunderland. Till I Die, the show the the show on Netflix about uh, the club in Sunderland. There's uh, Take Us Home. They have the Leeds United documentary on Amazon Prime, I believe. There's the Manchester City one that came out and. To be honest i don't know i'm not sure how much you're gonna know about this but i I have to ask do you know what kind of effect those have had for the clubs i mean for manchester city they're already a global brand but for a place like sunderland that seemed that was a hit from at least from the people that i talked to do you know what kind of effect it had on their sponsorships on their kit sales on anything
0: um it, it it wouldn't have anything it wouldn't have done anything in terms of increasing their fan base what it had, what it has had the effect of doing, is to increase the profile of the club. So I think sponsorship income that they've been able to go to uh, two sponsors and say, look, we, we've had now two series of this show of Sunderland till I die, and um, yeah, there's a potential for a third one. It, it is uh, uh, it is it is melodramatic stuff. Um, and therefore, yes, they, they've got a, they've had a commercial advantage on the back of that, and clearly they made a little bit of money from from the production company itself. Uh, but it, but in terms of generating extra fans, no impact at all. Merchandise, I, I, I suspect not. I, I I cannot see anybody in the states or anybody in in Asia watching that program crying with laughter. Um, as they lurch from one crazy moment to another and saying on the back of that, I want a Sunderland shirt because it, it, you know, people want to be associated with success. And that's why yeah, that, that's why Nike have just signed the, you know, the deal with Liverpool uh, right. in, in terms of kit manufacturing. Um, it, it's not because Liverpool are cute or funny. It's because Liverpool are huge and they've got a global fan base. Um, a, a team such as Sunderland, there's, there's not
1: enough space I imagine it helps on social media. I mean, I, you're right. I love the show. I didn't order uh, a kit, but I, I might have clicked follow on Twitter. That must have had some sort of effect. Is that yeah. something that, you, that, you, that you're able to put a dollar amount on? I mean, I know that's, that's got to go into valuating a club.
0: Um, media
1: uh, side, social media.
0: Yeah, I, I think an increased social media presence is, you know, and, and the, the, the problem with social media is that it's, it's zero cost to join. So, you know, there's no downside and um, it's zero cost to join, it's zero cost to leave. Um, but what the club would be able to do is that when it's in negotiations with sponsors, with front of shirt, side of shirt, uh, you know, pitch sponsors, partners and so on, it can say, you know, on the back of this program, we've gone from having 100,000 to 300,000 followers on Twitter. Um, you associate with our product, yet therefore your product is going to be seen by eyeballs. Yeah, you know, there's been more eyeballs than if the program hadn't taken place. So you, you'll be able to get a marginal benefit financially uh, in terms of commercial, but I don't think we should, we're not talking huge numbers.
1: Okay. I was trying to get you to say that Sunderland doubled in value because of the show, but I guess it's not that's that's
0: not going to happen. No, no, no. and uh, Sunderland is 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 an intriguing club because I think it's fairly well known that the owners would like to divest it, and um, right. and and the the problem they have is you know, they made a lot of promises with uh, with the, with the fans, and and in my view, um, don't over don't overpromise and underdeliver deliver in, in any aspect of life because people will hold you to it.
1: Right. Yeah, maybe some advice there. Um, if it, I'm sure the Sunderland uh, brass are listening, but um, yeah, I think I think Raphael had a had a couple questions. He wanted to chime in. Yeah, uh,
2: I'd love to hear. I mean, we haven't spoken that much about Corona, which honestly, it sounds kind of crazy. But I, I I can't. I don't want to keep talking about it. But we needed. We have to talk a little bit about the effects of Corona without using the word Corona. So I'm not going to say the word Corona anymore. But I want to ask you based off the thing that's going on in our world. I'll just say that. How much of the valuations of clubs uh, change in the Premier League and the Championship? You know, if there's someone listening to our show right now who wants to buy a club in, in the Premier League or the Championship, if, if the owner said to him X price on January 1st, 2020, how much should that price change? Obviously, it depends on every club, but in terms of what's happened, how much does that really change the reality on the ground and and uh, you know, if there's no fans for an entire season, that must surely that's a game changer. So, be curious to get your thoughts on that.
0: It is. I mean, ultimately, uh, from a financial point of view, of uh, football club's like any other business. It's worth how much cash it's going to generate in future years. So, you know, I think the first thing you'd have to say is that the the cash the cash flows generated over a you know, realistically a, a twelve to eighteen month period is as, as a minimum are going to be depleted um if if we take a look at the the big deal in town as far as uh, as far as england is concerned at present that's uh that's newcastle united um the owner mike ashley was was looking for close to 400 million um, right. and he's accepted 300 so if you know, if we talk about a a decrease of 25 to 30 percent in in the premier league i don't think that would be unreasonable um if and um the, the other issue is that is the further you're down the leagues, you, you, you and I could buy a, a football club today for one pound, for one dollar.
2: I want to get in, in more into that. And when you take that responsibility on from an owner, you buy the club and uh, again, no one knows what's going to happen. The world is a very crazy place. We see that lots of things can change. But let's just go with the assumption right now that there will not be one single supporter in the crowd for all of next year. How do you, as the new owner, uh, come in and create ideas, strategic ideas of how to generate that loss of revenue? I'm sure, I know you've talked about this a bit in your podcast. I know this is a question that's very, that everyone's asking, but I wanna really like put up how how does an owner who buys that club for a pound now find creative ways to, to make that extra revenue? Is it even possible? Do you have to say, hey, the next year is going to be very difficult, but I know that in two or three years, things will be okay. Like, Is that something you have to think about, that next year is kind of down the toilet?
0: It is it's it is down the toilet, but what you've got to try to do is to ensure it's less down the toilet than it is for the other clubs in your division. So you know, my, my advice would be to a new owner, communicate, be proactive, um, be creative as well. So we've got a club here, um, in Scotland, a, a, a club called Arbroath, which uh, I suspect few people in the states will have heard of, uh, it gets crowds of 200, 250, and what was it done? It sold bricks, and you can buy a purple brick or a gold brick or a red brick in the club for a different sum of money, and that's raised money. Um, th- there's crowdfunding initiatives, so you you can um, for for the matches that are not taking place. What some clubs are doing is they say, well, look, we, yeah, you can't be there, but we want you to be there in spirit. Send us a photograph, and for £25, we will stick that on a poster, and we'll stick that in one of the seats. And then you go and try and find yourself in the seats. And then right. you know, it, it, it will not be substantial sums, but –
2: Exactly. I mean, like small, you said, will that help? But that does that really help? I mean, you're yeah. also talking about a tiny club in Scotland that doesn't need – that much to, to run itself, right? So I'm talking about a league one, you and I, you and I can, we buy a club tomorrow in league one for the pound. We look at the books, we see the revenue that was meant to come in. Uh, we, we say, okay, take out the revenue of ticket sales because that's not happening. Um, what would <laughs> you do a tough one?
0: Yeah, it, it's, well, I, unless, unless you do have wealth, um, I, I, I couldn't advise anybody to buy a football club because effectively, if, if you take a look at the three main, main income sources, so your your ticket sales aren't gonna be taking place, the broadcast deals, the broadcasters aren't happy because a match taking place in an empty stadium isn't as good as one where there is an atmosphere. But also, um, as far as the broadcasters are concerned, many, their, their biggest customers are our pubs, are uh, bars, are clubs. And if people can't congregate in those, that revenue stream has been has, has gone as far as the broadcasters. So the broadcasters will be looking through the small print and they say, Well, hold on, you know, we we signed for you to supply us for the football football match taking place in front of paying spectators. You're not pay, you are not providing the paying spectators. So therefore we're gonna reduce what we're gonna pay for you by thirty percent. The sponsors are gonna be saying, Well, you know, the sponsorship deal's up for renewal this year. Um, you know, we we just made two hundred members of staff redundant. Now, do we want to be seen to be sponsoring a football club under those circumstances? We've got a break clause in the contract. We're going to activate that break clause. So all the three main sources of income for a football club are going to be severely depleted. Can you sell players? Well, you can't because the market's going to collapse. We've got too many people trying to sell and nobody trying to buy. So the only other thing you can do is to get get funding from either a bank. As we were saying earlier, banks don't want to lend to football clubs because they don't want to suffer reputational damage. So that comes down to you and me, Raphael. Let's take a look at our bank accounts. How much can we afford to lose over the next year?
2: Yeah, I I don't think I'll be able to join you in that project. (laughs) But I I think that, you know, it's, uh, you know, some of the clients that we've spoken to and and we've talked to about this situation, you know, we've said to them that, okay, you know, next year is going to be rough. But I also, I always try to make the best out of everything. And, that first season when fans are allowed back, the energy and the passion in a lot of these communities, whether it's in the UK or other parts of Europe, will be amazing. I mean, what you could experience as a club and what the club means to your city and being able to come back and sit in the stadium and support the match and going to the pub, and that could be electrifying, that could be uh, huge, that could change everything. So maybe you have a very difficult year, but of course, like you said, you have to have the wealth to be able to suffer through That year. I mean, because if you if you can't make it through that year, you won't get to the next year. But surely like this is this is a thing that will go away. I I hope, you know, we hope that there will be a vaccine. We hope that we hope that in a year or two that things will uh, go back to normal and that things will get better. But it's it's about kind of having the courage, I think, for what, for next year, because like you said, these, these, some of these owners also, they've owned the team for 30 years. They're tired. You know, they're tired. They don't want to fight with their players about wage cuts and, you know, they've been there and done that. They don't have the excitement of a first time owner who's going to go in and make mistakes and talk about it with his mates who he buys the, you know, at the pub after he buys it. There's, it seems to me, it's almost like an interesting time for a, a new young energetic, type of ownership group to come in and say, you know, we need to be creative for this year, but the potential for the future is enormous.
0: Yes. Uh, if, if you've got a strong balance sheet, if you've got cash, I mean, and cash has never been more king than it is in 2020, then I think there are opportunities. I think you also have to be a little bit cautious about the rebound. Um, you know, at, at present, the UK government is is paying the wages of, of you know, six to eight million people that can 't carry on forever right when, when it does come back, many of those people will find that actually they don 't have a job and, and then you know if, if, if you're a, if you 're a football fan, no matter how much you love your club and it 's a choice between paying the rent and paying for your season ticket, you pay for the rent right um, so a lot a lot of tough decisions can be made and th- there is a potential danger of um, you know wearing the latest uh, football merchandise could be seen to be socially so socially insensitive because yeah okay I've, I've still got my job i can go and afford to go and spend you know however you know 60 70 pounds on a new shirt that's fine for me i go to the pub where i've always been for the last 20 years with my same friends and i meet them and two of them okay they say i can afford one drink on a saturday i've had to go and cancel my season ticket um i've lost my job or i've been furloughed or whatever and i've just turned up in this brand new piece of poly- polyester yeah you know, I, I look a dick yeah. It's as yeah. simple as that. Yeah. I just look at, uh, you know, these, these people mm-hmm. are my friends. Yeah. It, it just makes you look at such an insensitive soul um, yeah. that uh, I, I think uh, merchandise sales and things of that nature will, will have to be dealt with very, very carefully. Uh, the sort of the keeping up with the Joneses, the conspicuous consumption elements of, of modern society will take uh, a, will take a breathing space because, I think the majority of people want to be seen as being responsible citizens and and not flaunting their wealth um, and not being insensitive to the, the circumstances of others.
2: I think, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I also think one thing that a lot of people, including friends and family of mine don't realize is we're in this period right now where the government's covering the wages and people have that sense in their head that, okay, I'm on furlough, but I might come back. I might not come back. I'll find another job. But once that period ends where, companies say hey you're not coming back and suddenly you have all these people actually actually unemployed not you know just kind of waiting for things to end where companies shut down restaurants shut down because we're not in the real aftermath yet we're still in the storm of corona we're still there everyone you know in tel aviv you go to the, the famous downtown area and you see a lot of people in their 20s and 30s who work in the high-tech fields who are are furloughed and they they made good salaries before and they can afford it but when it comes august or july and these people aren't brought back and they don't have any jobs to go to. Like you said, I think it's a great point. Are they going to want to pay the thousand euro a year for season tickets for Maccabi Tel Aviv? Or are they going to say, Hey, I can't.
1: Yeah. I wanted to something that's been touched on a few times throughout, but obviously a lot of our, a lot of our listeners are American and the, everyone here is crazy for the Premier League. And I think it'd be interesting for people to hear. There are a few things that I found interesting that I've learned, for example, from your show, Kieran, or that, have caused me to do a bit more research. So I wanted to see if, even if it's kind of maybe basic for you, if it's something that you could I think people would find fascinating. One of which is the, how much sponsors will pay for the front of kits, whether that's on Manchester city or a bottom of the league, Premier League club versus uh, compared to even maybe some, some championship teams, whatever, whatever it is maybe that you can share. I think people would find interesting. And then the other thing that I think uh, is also a big, um, a big stream that, teams in England have that maybe other places don't, especially in the U S for example, is the money that they're paid from, from the football association. And I know that a lot of that comes from also it's tied into broadcast deals, but for example, the merit payments, which I, which are based on where you finish in the table. So can you give us an idea or any interesting tidbits on, yeah, what, what different figures are paid for those sponsorship deals on the, on the front of the kits? Cause obviously that's something everybody likes to talk about and is big all over Europe. And you know, it's no different in the United States They have sponsors on our, on our football kits. And then, yeah, I think something that people, even casual Premier League fans, like, I think, you know, people talk about a super league and the potential of that and the focus kind of turns to people who aren't fans of the big clubs. And I think something that maybe people don't even realize is that when your club, when your club is fighting for, let's say Europe is out of it. If you're the difference between 18th, from what I understand, finishing in 18th and finishing in ninth can be financially significant and for for the American fans here, our you know our fans that people that listen to the show that have that aren't fans of the big clubs, they, I'm sure they would be interested to hear about the the significant amount of money that they can earn based on where they finish in the table. Sure. Well,
0: if, if we start off with the commercial deals, um, a, a lot is linked to the the brand of the club. So Ma- Manchester United are the are the crown jewels. Yeah, you know, they are the the, the biggest generators in in the uk um their deal with uh chevrolet um is around about 54 million sterling a year now there are penalty clauses if united fail to qualify for the champions league in two years on the trot um i know that they they've got, they've got a, a manufacturing deal with the D-DAS, which is 75 million a year on top of the chevrolet sponsorship um but there's 25 percent uh, penalty clauses if, if they fail to make the Champions League. So that's why they're desperate this year to either win the Europa League or to finish in the top four, possibly top five of the Premier League. So we, yeah, we're talking, you know, 53 million. Um, and has not really worked for Chevrolet. Che- Chevrolet sold 13 cars in England last year. So that works out as 4 million bucks per car. Yes, yeah, so it's not, not proven to be particularly successful. Um, but, uh, and also... Apparently, the, the guy that negotiated that deal on behalf of Chevrolet, um, he was sacked within a month of signing off of that, that multi year deal, which I think expires in 2021.
1: I can um, so that would be is that unique to United? Are there other big clubs that have such massive deals like that that are?
0: Um, L- Liverpool with Standard Chartered, they're on around about 40 million. Manchester City with the Etihad around about the same. Chelsea have got a big one with... Uh, I think they've just got... They, they just finished their deal with Yokohama tyres and they're moving to three. So, yeah, we're talking... Um, you know, between forty and fifty million would be for a big six club would be a, a target figure, which is realistic. When you drop into the 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 outer reaches of the the, the Premier League, so, you know, I I support this team called Brighton and Albion. We've been in the Premier League for two years. I'm hoping, well, they're three years now. I'm hoping we're going to avoid relegation. Um, we've just signed a renewal deal with American Express, but American Express were paying. I think it was one and a half million a year. That's been increase to about seven or eight um, so that's where you stand in the Premier League and if you drop into the championship realistically um, you can there, there's a factor of 12 I've been told between uh, championship and Premier League so we're probably talking around about five hundred thousand sterling for for front of shirt uh, so you know you go from five hundred thousand for you know say Derby or Nottingham Forest or uh, you know, West Bromwich Albion to 50 odd million for Manchester United so the scaling is is very very significant Um, in in terms of the broadcast deal um, it it becomes more and more complicated each year but the way that it works out is that um, a a proportion of the money is split evenly between the clubs then you get um, effectively two and a half million pounds um increments for each individual position in in the premier league so you go from 20th to 90th so that goes from two and a half million to five million right up to the very top so you keep adding two and a half million per position Uh, and the benefit of that is it comes to the last day of the season and you could finish anywhere between 13th and 9th and you know the chairman will come in and say look guys you know there's, there's 10 million there's 10 million sterling riding on this match Right. i
1: think i think people say oh they want to make you know obviously the fans want to make champions league because they want to play in champions league but i think people sometimes don't know what's what's at stake when it comes to where teams are finishing what about europa league where does that stand in
0: um europe europa league get 20 percent of the the payouts of uefa so 80 percent goes into uh, the champions league so liverpool they made around about i think it was 110 million euros from winning the champions league last season um at that uh, whereas chelsea made around about 35 million from winning the um europa league so that yeah there, there are significant differences and that's why your sponsors want you to be in the champions league it's more lucrative um but, it, but if you take a look at viewing figures um, they are so skewed towards the champions league um that you know trying trying to get viewing figures for Europa league, even I as a football nut i i 've stopped watching it unless it unless it's sort we get to the quarter final or semi final stages
1: right yeah it's, yeah it's fascinating to hear what the differences are i mean um and it so is it similar in the championship when it comes to finishing in the table the, no the, the real differences in no,
0: championship ch- championship is 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 split evenly. Um, the the only issue is that if you appear live on television from the uh, Sky, who are the, the 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 championship broadcaster partner, um if you are the the home team, you get an extra one hundred thousand, and if you are the away team, you get an extra ten thousand. So you got you got to do you, you gotta appear an awful lot of times wow. before you make much money.
1: And they don't. And yeah, I think. I don't know if it's in all of England, but how is the the revenue split from match day? Because again, in the US, even in MLS, the broadcasting deals aren't massive. So the teams here are incredibly dependent on match day, on ticket sales, on everything that's done at the stadium. Um, so one action, one yeah, is that question. Then two is what sort of money is made on a weekly basis at, at a given match? And maybe you could do the same thing quickly. Like, the top teams in the Premier League, how much they do at a home match, um, and maybe some of the, the sm- how much does Aston Villa make?
0: Okay. Um, if, if we take uh, Manchester United, they make around about 4 million sterling for each home match. Um, yeah, they've got a 76,000 capacity stadium. Uh, it's, it's, it's looking old it's, it's no longer being considered for Champions League Finals because it's, it, the facilities aren't quite good enough but it, it still generates a lot of money. so they made a total of one hundred and eleven million sterling from from their home matches last season um, and that drops down if you go to so so as far as United were concerned eighteen um, percent of income came from Match Day and they got the biggest, they got the biggest stadium in the country. You could drop down to a small club such as Bournemouth who um got a a small capacity stadium um 3.8 percent of their revenues come from match day so you know that they they if they if they spend the whole of next season in the premier league um and they don't have to sell a ticket actually it's not it's not going to make a huge amount of difference to them um so so that's Mm -hmm. where we are as far as the uh the, the premier league is concerned overall um, it, it's about one pound in eight comes from match day. So it's, it's, a, it's a relatively small component of a, of a club's uh, armory in terms of revenue generation. You drop down into the championship um, and it becomes that much more important because the championship doesn't have the benefit of a big TV deal. So therefore, for most clubs in the championship, you're, you're talking um, if, if they're not receiving parachute payments from being relegated from the Premier League, uh, matchday income is somewhere between 30 to 40 percent of their income stream.
2: I want to I want to end up with this because I know we're, we're running out of time and we, we appreciate all the time you've given us. Now, I know that you're British, so you think that all the football revolves around you because that's how British guys think. <laughs> Got to say
0: I'm, it. I'm Irish. Name like nine. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Fair
2: enough. But I want to get your thoughts on something that I feel like no one in the Western media is kind of talking about, but that is what about football clubs in the rest of the world? I mean, in order to have a Champions League, in order to have a Europa League, you need clubs from all over the world. And a lot of these clubs, the, the TV deals are, are tiny. I mean, even in some of the big leagues in, in Western Europe, leagues that are considered top five leagues, the, the, the TV money's not even close, but forget those leagues for a second. Do you think that there's, that there's clubs in England or in general in Western Europe thinking about, hey, what happens, you know, if our league is strong, but there aren't other leagues in the world, how are we going to have Champions League? How are we going to have Europa League? And that leads me kind of to the the next question, uh, which will be my last question is, is this the right time maybe for there to be that Super League that people have talked about? Is it a time where there's some leagues where, you know, you have the Ajax in Holland, where there's some clubs that are really going to struggle next year if there's no fans and if they don't get money from the lenders that you talked about they don't get a money grant from the government is it maybe that time where some of these teams that do have the money you know in belgium there's a lot of teams that have a lot a lot of money in the bank because they've uh, sold players to the premier league and et cetera is it a, is this a time for there to be a super league
0: um th- there are certainly talks between individual leagues so Belgium, the Netherlands, Portugal, and Scotland. They've spoken about forming what's referred to as the Atlantic League. Um, they feel that there is some scope to, to enhance the TV deals because on an individual basis, they, they struggle to, to generate those revenues. I, I think the problem clubs of that nature have is that they, they are from relatively small countries. Um, we've, we've certainly seen a lot of growth in the Bundesliga. Uh, in terms of its popularity because uh, you know, German German football culture is becoming more and more, more popular. Um, La Liga has got the benefits of having Barcelona and Real Madrid. So the, 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 there are opportunities to, to grow the TV revenues. Um, but those revenues, those, those opportunities aren't going to be for the next three or four years. We, we, we are going to be in an almighty hangover uh, as far as uh, as COVID is concerned, I'm, I'm afraid um, economically, and the, the TV companies will not want to be seen to be spending large amounts, and they won't they won't have the subscribers either, because yeah. as we we're talking earlier, people have lost their jobs. You know, the first thing right. you do is you, is you cancel your your sports subscription. Um, in, in terms of the Super League, um, I, I think we're going to move to a hybrid model and uh, that hybrid model is going to be the the big clubs in europe will want a guaranteed position in some form of european league because it's glamorous it it delivers it delivers the sponsors it delivers uh in terms of the prices at which tickets are sold and it's very popular with broadcasters as well so yeah it, it it ticks all boxes they want some of those matches to take place at weekends because they'll get higher viewing figures at the weekends as well the only way that that can be achieved is if we have a smaller version of the domestic because if if you talk to a Barcelona fan what's their biggest match of the season it's Real Madrid it it won't be against Manchester United it won't be against Bayern and so on. if you talk to a Dortmund fan biggest match of the season will be against Bayern here here in here in England you know Liverpool we hate Manchester United more than anything else on the planet um but yeah we want, we want to we, but we also want to, to have the revenues, so my what i'm anticipating and're and they're, they're locked into a deal until twenty twenty four twenty five um but expect to see some significant changes whereby um in instead of having six group games in in the champions League, you'll be guaranteed a minimum of twelve Wow. Um, and therefore to to win the Champions League you're probably talking about 20 games now that can't fit into a calendar so therefore the pressure will be domestically cut La Liga from 20 clubs to 18 or 16 do the same in the Premier League you know, and things of that nature so therefore you're, the two things will be able to operate side by side and, and for the big clubs perspective um, that will be very very lucrative um, we, we've seen the likes of Agnelli Who's the uh, the head of the European Club Association, saying uh, Atalanta should not have qualified for the Champions League this season. They're not big enough a club, so expect to see a closed shop or a quasi closed shop as far as whatever this new creation is going to be. So it it won't be it it won't be a a, a, a super league as such, but it will be a vastly expanded Champions League. A, very, a vastly more lucrative Champions League. And therefore, the domestic countries will have to take some some, penalt- some punishment as a result of that through shrinking, fewer cup competitions, things of that nature.
2: But in terms of, and again, I, I know we, we have to wrap up, but it, it's too fascinating, so I'll just give a follow-up. But in terms of these clubs, like the IXs and teams, big clubs in, in uh, Belgium. <laughs> uh, hello, Doug. Welcome to the show uh these teams if, if the leagues if the leagues can't let's say you have specific leagues or next year there's three or four teams that really struggle to to field the team that's really gonna hurt these clubs right that's really gonna how are these clubs gonna be able to to justify themselves you know what I, you know what i'm trying to say like these clubs are the ones who are going to get hit the most. Not the teams in England, not the teams in Germany, but the big, the Ajaxes, Club Bruges and big teams in Switzerland, Young Boys, Basel. These are the teams that I think there's a big concern over them. So I, I don't know, I just, that's just my, I'm very worried about that.
0: Yeah, but I, I think in the, the mid-tier European countries, right. um, they, they are genuinely going to, to struggle. I, I think they will simply have to um, adjust their budgets accordingly yeah and uh expect to see wage levels in those leagues fall but in the premier league especially for those clubs that qualify for the these these uh these big european competitions i think wage levels will be maintained because part of the reason for that is that the players are on four four five six year fixed contracts you know, so if right. you, if you take a look at david De Gea at manchester united um he's on yeah i think it's 19 million a year sterling uh for six years if if they if they try to cut his wages, he walks to Real Madrid tomorrow. So they yeah. they and and then they have to go and pay a fee to go and replace him. So, club cl- the clubs are it, the big clubs are in an awkward position. As you drop into mid tier, they've got players on two and three year contracts. That, that's that's going to be a real challenge for them. Uh, if if we manage to get through this without losing any clubs in Europe, I'll be amazed.
1: You think the transfer market is just? It's really going to yeah. Tra- tra- transfer market because like, you know, all those clubs. I know, obviously, English clubs depend on it, but I've read, like, in Croatia, for example, they I think they earn something crazy like four pounds for every for every pound uh, in transfers versus traditional income. So that's, like, where Rafael's getting at is especially, you know, Basel, Ajax, the clubs that are five times the size of any club in their league, they just manufacture players and they sell them for massive amounts. And you think that's going to take a massive...
2: Even Portugal, like, Portuguese league, the big clubs... I mean, Florida. yeah. That's Manfica what they do. They, they, they produce really good players and sell them. If, if they don't have the ability to sell them, they don't have that go. There goes kind of their, the model of what they're yeah. doing.
1: So, or or yeah. does it, or does that, do they start leaning on that more now, Kieran, even if prices are lower, even if prices are lower, isn't that going to be the, like, it's cheaper to just have Academy players and sell them. Even if maybe you would have sold them for 60 million last year and you, and you sell them for 30 million this year, isn't that still going to be, maybe their saving grace.
0: It, I, I think it might rescue some clubs, but every buyer will be aware of the economic pressures that the seller is under, and will price. You, you will be buying fire sale product. In in terms of the market, you know economics 101: supply and demand. We've got lots of clubs who are desperate to sell, so we're increasing the supplier players. We've got lots of players who will be out of contract, who won't be who who their existing club will not be able to offer a contract renewal contract to because the, that club hasn't got any cash to pay them. Right. So, so the supply of players is going to increase, the demand is going to fall because who can afford to buy when we've got so many football clubs throughout Europe and again on the likes of Ajax and Porto and Benfica uh, and Basel, they've got no money coming in so they can't afford to buy. They can't afford to buy from the lower reaches of, of KNBB right. guess, so from their domestic league so yeah, the, the, the transfer market is going to take an almighty hit.
2: Look, we could go on forever, but uh, I think we will leave it at there. And I, I guess when, when we say we could go on, we could just continue listening to our podcast. That's how we'll get to, to hear you. And again, we recommend everyone to check out your podcast. Uh, we really appreciate your time. We found the conversation really interesting. We hope our, our listeners do as well. And we want to wish you well. Make sure that you stay safe. And uh, we hope to have you on again in the
0: future. or hope our paths cross in some ways. Well, thanks very much for the invite, guys. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, can